I really have been thinking a lot about my image of God and how confused that can be. And um, you know, I remember my childhood. Uh, my dad was incredibly happy at one moment, or he is down and depressed the next, or he was angry. He was all over the place. In fact, I remember one time my brothers, who were 13 and 14, had been out all night partying and had actually totaled my dad's car. And his response right off the bat was, well, <clears throat> boys will be boys. The next day I walk into the house and I actually slam the door uh, for whatever reason. And he jumps all over me. He goes, oh, there's no respect in this house. You're slamming the door. And I thought, hold it. My brothers just totaled your car and they get off easy. I slam the door and you yell at me. So when I started following Jesus at 23, I got amazingly convicted on some of the wrong things I was doing. I admitted them all and his forgiveness was very real to me. But then I had to start trusting God. And that's where the real struggle came for me because I kind of placed my picture of my dad onto God. And so I didn't know if he's gonna explode at me in anger for the smallest thing or if he was gonna blow off my greatest failures. And so I was a little gun shy with God. So I went on a 25 year journey to try to dig out the character of Jesus out of the four gospels and look for what's he like. When he's angry, what kind of anger is it? Is it clean, is it unclean? When, is he compassionate, is he patient? Uh, who is he and, and how do I trust him? So this, uh, this is about my journey of digging out uh, Jesus's character and then what we find out from John 14, nine, before Jesus dies, he turns to his disciples and he says, if you've seen me, you've actually seen the Father. The way Jesus relates to people is the way the Father relates to people. So as I am you know, processing my, my journey with the Lord, I'm looking in the New Testament and I kind of shifted from approaching the Bible, looking for rules like what I was doing, what I was doing right, what I was doing wrong, to looking for Jesus and his character. And so I run on this great passage in Matthew 15 where Jesus has an interaction with the Pharisees. You know, they're upset that the disciples aren't washing their hands. It's the tradition of the elders. It's not the word of God, it's just the tradition. And Jesus tells them a parable, basically says, it's not what goes into a person's mouth that makes them unclean, it's what comes out of their mouth. And they don't get it, the Pharisees, but then again, the disciples don't either. So Peter, comes to Jesus privately later and says, explain the parable to us. And Jesus says, are you so dull? Don't you yet understand? And, and then he unfolds the parable and he explains it to him. Now in our culture, we live in a culture of accusation. Everybody's fault finding. We also have the enemy coming in, trying to masquerade as God's voice, accusing us. You didn't do this, you didn't do that. And so we live under a barrage of accusation. Jesus is not accusing Peter here. He's not rejecting Peter because later Jesus tells him, you know, I'm gonna die, I'm gonna go to the cross. And, and Peter basically throws himself at the Lord, and says, no master, not you. And Jesus, you know, says, get behind me, Satan. You don't have in your mind uh, God's things. You have in mind man's things. And, but he doesn't reject him, not personally or not positionally. He doesn't say, I don't want to hang out with you anymore. He doesn't say, get off the leadership team. And then, of course, we all know Peter goes on to deny the Lord. And even then, Jesus does not reject him personally or positionally, but restores him. So if he's not rejecting him for the really big things, he's not rejecting him for not understanding in the small things. He's basically saying, Peter, you can get this. Think, stretch, reach. This is within your grasp. And, and then he instructs Peter about the meaning of the parable. 
So you see Jesus working with Peter in patience and in instruction without rejection and, and really without accusation. And you have to look at your image of God to think, wow, do I, is my image of God completely colored by accusation or do I see the wholeness? And the more character elements of Jesus you work through, you really begin understanding he is not accusing. He's always instructing. He's patient. He may be correcting, but even as correction and discipline, there is no rejection. And that makes us really solid and whole in relating to him and doing his will. And so when we fall, we can get back up because we have confidence in his goodness. A second situation that reveals Jesus' character is after the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus sends the disciples out on the water. They're rowing the boat. In the middle of the night, 3, 4, 5 in the morning, Jesus walks on the water and approaches them. They're terrified when they see him, and Jesus says, don't be afraid, it's me. And Peter says, Lord, if that's you, call me out on the water with you. He says, come. That's a funny question, but Peter's got faith. He starts walking and then he takes his eyes off Jesus and looks at the wind and the wave and fear grips him and he starts to sink in the water. Immediately Jesus, he reaches his hand out and rescues Peter. And then he says, oh you of little faith, why did you doubt? Again, I don't hear accusation in that because the Lord's cleaned up my vision of him enough where I'm not reading the accusation that my dad would have had in a situation like that, knowing that Jesus is not rejecting Peter and all these other events in, in his life. He's working with him, says, you can do this. You don't have to doubt. Stick with me. Next time I want you to go the whole way. And so it just, again, it reveals Jesus' patience, his instruction, and his lack of accusation and rejection. Another situation with Jesus that I want to explore Peter's failure is after the Mount of Transfiguration, they walk into a nearby village or town. The disciples actually are arguing on the road which one of them is the greatest. There's envy, there's jealousy. Paul calls it selfish ambition and strife. And it's sin. It's not just failure, it's sin. This happens three times. After the Mount of Transfiguration, they argue about who's the greatest. Again, sometime later, James and John, they try to get the thrones to the left and right of Jesus. And it's sometime before the triumphal entry. And then the third time this, this argument arises, at the Last Supper, they actually break out into, again, their jealousy and their envying about who's the greatest. And Jesus deals with it all three times. In Mark 9, on the first one here, he brings a little child in front of them and talks to them about being servant leaders in the kingdom. So Jesus deals with them in their sin, again, in patience. He's not rejecting them positionally or personally. He's not accusing them, oh, you sin, look what you're doing. He actually is patient with them and instructs them so that they can grow and be the leaders and the servants he wants them to be. So when you see Jesus being patient with Peter when he doesn't understand the parable and he instructs them, he's revealing the Father being patient with Peter, the Father being patient with us and instructing us. When you see Jesus being patient with Peter when he's sunk in the water through fear, that's revealing that the Father is grabbing us and rescuing us in our struggles and fears. When the disciples are arguing who's the greatest, again, Jesus' patience and his instruction with the little child reveals that the Father is instructing us when we sin. He is revealing, convicting, and instructing. And when you know that about God, you can trust him so much more when you're either failing or sinning. And that's critical to us going long and, and far with God and, and our calling.
So the other takeaway is, you know, converting these into First Commandment prayers where you're really talking to the Lord. And just for example, Lord, I love the way that you're patient with Peter when he doesn't understand. And you explain it to him. You're not accusing him and you're not rejecting him. And then when I line that up with the fact that when Peter fails to walk on water, you rescue him and then you instruct him again, that makes me feel like I can fail, I cannot understand, I can struggle in something that you've called me to and I know you're going to help me and you're going to instruct me, you're not going to reject me. Lord, I love that about you. And I also love, you know, when we think about the times they're arguing about who's the greatest, converting that into prayer and just saying, Lord, you didn't have a meltdown. I mean, you revealed the situation and then you instructed them with the little child. Wow, if you're going to treat me that way, that gives me confidence to really respond to you and really pursue you and really obey you. So those are examples of ways you can convert the character of Jesus into one-on-one first commandment prayers that really open your heart up to love the Lord your God with your whole heart, all your strength, all your mind, and all your soul. Um, And boy, there's a lot of fire and energy and just goodness that comes when you do that.